How's it going, folks? This is Captain Cam with Blackbird Guide Services, and I will be your host for today's episode of Eastern Current. And today, our guest is Captain Rich Hastings out of Isle Morada, Florida. And on this episode, we talk a lot about fishing in the Keys in the winter and how it can be a really good time to come down there and visit. And uh, we also talk a little bit about his new skiff that he has, which I think a lot of people have interest in, and that's the Floyd 8-weight. So if you're interested in that boat and you're interested in fishing in the Keys in the winter, this is a great episode for you. So stay tuned, and we will talk to you soon. I've teamed up with Florida Fishing Products to outfit my guide service with their spinning reels, braided line, and fluorocarbon leader, and I'm looking forward to giving you some real-world feedback on their gear. I've been enjoying their Osprey CE for all my light tackle, redfish, and speckled trout, and Resolute for my beefier setups for big reds, cobia, tarpon, and jacks. I'm looking forward to helping further their mission to equip anglers to fish better, which couldn't align closer with our values here at Eastern Current. Be sure to check out their website, floridafishingproducts.com, or ask about them at your local tackle shop. Temple Fork Outfitters is the rod of choice for all of us here at Eastern Current. Whether we're fly fishing for shallow water redfish, sight casting to cobia from a tower, or dropping live pinfish to grouper in 100 feet of water, they have the rod for the job. Their customer service is unmatched by any rod company out there, and their rods can take the beating of everyday guide use without any issues. My favorite rod for redfish and speckled trout is their 7-foot medium-light tactical inshore spin rod. Be sure to check out their website, tforods.com. Captain Rich, how's it going, man? Fantastic. How you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm a little burnout right now on uh on redfish currently so i'm hoping our false albacore starts showing up pretty thick here pretty soon yeah we're all looking forward to cooler water temps and our redfish starting to get a little bit bitier yeah yeah so um captain rich is located in uh in the florida keys which which uh key do you live on isla morada isla morada um Anyone that listens to this podcast has probably heard about Isle Murata. Um And you're a full-time guide. And uh, give us a little background on yourself and and kind of where, where you started and how you got to where you are now. Yeah. So I used to live in Colorado, and I was a bit of ski bum, uh, of a ski bum for a few years. And that's where I kind of fell in love with fly fishing eventually. And I got less into skiing and more into fishing every day. And the last few years I lived there, instead of skiing the target 100 days a season, I ended up skiing maybe 10, 15 days a season. And if it was over 25 degrees out, I would put my boat on the water and floating. And then as the years went by in Colorado, trout guiding, I got more and more into sight fishing. So I found myself spending my time off fishing for carp and uh, northern pike quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And... It was a couple different kind of light bulbs that went off in my head, but I remember eating lunch with a client one day, and he was like, man, you're really nice when I blow the shot, and you don't yell at me. I bet you'd be a really good guy in the Keys. Do you happen to guide down there? And I was like, no, I, I don't, but, you know, I never really had even thought about it. And then I saw, I believe it was on the Fly, fly Fishing Film Tour, a uh, movie about saltwater fishing, and I was like, man, that looks so cool. That's just sight fishing every day, and something I'd really love to get into. Mm-hmm. So I packed up an RV that I was living in and I did a road trip 
uh, throughout the coast. Stopped in Louisiana for about a month. Put a lot of thought into guiding in New Orleans and living there, but didn't quite seem like a year-round business. And I still had to check out the Keys. So I towed the RV down to the Keys and stayed pretty much in every state park for about a month down here, checking out all the different islands and where I wanted to settle down and really fell in love with Island Marotta in the Upper Keys area. And uh, went around applying for jobs. I ended up getting a job at Bun and Mary's and working at the tackle shop to start off. And they let me park my RV in the back of the parking lot, which made for some great housing. And starting off there in the tackle shop, they had a it's an old 94 Maverick Mirage with a two-stroke 90 on it mm-hmm. that they would let me use to go get bait pretty much. I was supposed to get, you know, collect pinfish and stuff for the marina, but I'd find ways to uh, make getting bait, including fishing in Flamingo and kind of <laughs> learning the areas. Sure. Yeah. So it was, it was nice. It was a good way for me to kind of learn the waters, and it took me a couple of years to get my captain's license. Uh-huh. But the day I got my captain's license in the mail, License in the mail. I ran my first charter, and uh, been running charters ever since. Man, what a, what an origin story that is! Um, yeah, that's awesome. Um, how long did it take you to feel like you had that area dialed in? Because the the few times that I've been there, it just seems like that whole area just seems so vast, and I'm like, man. This seems like it would take a lifetime to like and, navigate. You know, you know it does. Um, I think what takes a while of learning in the keys is just all your routes to kind of get around in different wind directions. Mm-hmm. But I'd, I'd never really say you ever get quite dialed in on it. It's just constantly a lifetime of learning. And every day of fishing on the water is different, which is something I really love about it. It's a new adventure every day out there. Yeah, yeah. I think... Uh, that's definitely a um, a plus for I think a lot of guides is just the fact that it's always something different, always some sort of new challenge, um, putting the puzzle get putting the puzzle together, if you will. Um, yeah. So what do you? Uh, what was the first species that you were like? This is the, and, and maybe it wasn't just one species, but was there one species that kind of caught your eye and you were like, "This is what I want to get really good at catching first? Oh, for sure. It was bonefish, 100%. Um, hands down, my favorite thing to fish for. Uh, most of my days off, I spend bone fishing, And all my friends that come down and want to go tarpon fishing, and then they offer to pole, I just point to the nearest flat and get skinny, and that's what I want to go catch is bonefish with my own time. Yeah, I but I would say my favorite fish to guide is tarpon. Um, just the thrill of chasing that big fish, it's kind of, you know, more like an elk hunt or a bear hunt where you're going out with folks for several days trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And the plus side of that is I don't have to cast an 11 weight all day and fight a big fish for an extended period of time. Sure. So my, my favorite fish to fish for is bonefish, but my favorite fish to guide is big tarpon. And is there good, um, f- forgive my ignorance because I have not fished the keys that much at all, but is there good uh, snook fishing where you live or is that more north? No, it's fantastic. Um, so a lot of my days, uh, for the most part in the winter months when the weather's cooler, are spent in the Flamingo area, which is about a 45-minute run to get to Flamingo from Isla Mirada. So a lot of guides, they're, they're making that crossing from the Upper Keys to get up there. Mm-hmm. And from a lot of the older guides I've talked to and heard from at the Florida Keys Guide Association meetings is that the snook fishing is some of the best it's ever been. 
So it's really cool to live here and experience that. And it's also a really great fish for beginner clients, which I still have a ton of. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people that come to see me that have never saltwater fly fish before, the snook is most likely going to be their first species that they get on fly. Yeah, I've heard I've heard of people going down there that haven't really had a lot of experience in fly fishing, and and generally they are geared towards um or steered towards fishing for snook. Is that do you do a lot of blind casting for snook, or is it all sight fishing, or is it both? It's a good mix of both. Um, I usually like to spend my mornings doing some topwater fishing. So I throw a lot of gurglers and kind of bang a lot of banks, do some bush banging. Um, and they're pretty likely to come out and eat something, making some noise. And it's just such an explosive eat off the surface. And it almost reminds me of like my bass fishing roots back in New Hampshire, growing up doing that. And I, I kind of like to treat them like bass a little bit too, as well. We're throwing bigger flies and colorful stuff that they like to eat. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, such an explosive bite. And if you make a good cast, they're probably going to eat it, which is really gratifying um, for any experience level. Yeah, definitely. 100%. Um, and has the, I feel like I've read something probably within the last year or two. Uh, have the bone, has the bonefish population come back somewhat from what it used to be? Because in your area, and, and probably other areas around you, um, didn't the bonefish population used to be like extremely abundant? Yeah. So the, a lot of the guys talk about, I believe it was 2010 when they had the deep freeze mm-hmm. and it killed off a lot of the bonefish and redfish and snook population. And when I first moved here seven years ago, the bonefishing still wasn't very good. Um, I told people that I wanted to guide bonefish and some of the older guys at the marina were like, yeah, good luck, kid. Have fun out there. And it didn't really seem like there was a lot of people that were even doing it. Mm-hmm. And over the years, I've definitely seen it pick up. And it was so like it was three years ago, we started to get a lot of smaller fish around. Mm-hmm. And that's always good to have those numbers of small fish showing up. And then they've really started to grow, too. So we're seeing a lot of fish now in the four to six pound range. And it's not uncommon to catch like a seven, eight pounder throughout the day or even bigger. So it's really nice to see that population kind of bounce back a little bit, even the short amount of time that I've lived here. And then also to see those fish growing too in the last couple of years is just awesome to have. Yeah, that is awesome. Has the uh, water quality and red tide stuff that, that Florida has been seeing, has that affected your fishing in particular? So we don't get any red tide down here. Um, we definitely get some algae blooms periodically throughout the year. That I think affected a little bit. Um, but it seems like Hurricane Irma made a big difference. I believe the water was about 300% above average of the freshwater that year, so closer to the flow that Everglades is supposed to be getting. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing that's helped a lot, definitely for that bone fishing to pick up, but it's it's hard to tell. I'm not much of a scientist there. Sometimes you just need a natural disaster to shake things up. <laughs> um, yeah. It's funny what you said about the bone fish, and just to draw a similarity for our fishing here um so now nowadays uh we only have a two-week season for flounder um and just because southern flounder was was uh, a very sought after fish for you know so many years and um and uh in the last i think it's been three years maybe four years that we've had a season on them uh, and varying in length 
as far as, you know, how long the season goes. And um, now we're starting to see, well, one, th- there's really good numbers of flounder, but two, the size class is a lot bigger. And from what I understand is usually size comes first and then uh, numbers come later, which is uh, promising to see for sure. And hopefully uh, is, you know, a similar outlook for y'all's bonefish. Yeah, I would hope so. Um, I've been doing a lot of fishing lately with Dr. Ross from the Bonefish Tarpon Trust, and he's doing his tagging study, um, trying to figure out where their spawning grounds and when and why they do that that time of year. Um, so hopefully they can prevent some fishing during that for those guys. Um, but it's really fun to talk with him, and I get a lot of my intel on the science part of it from fishing with him. Yeah, that's that's awesome. You get to do that. How far does a uh, a bonefish in your area travel? If y'all have been so, tagging him, he's got fish that have gone from Biscayne Bay all the way down to Big Pine. So they're tracking fish that are moving, you know, sixty plus miles in a couple months period of time, which is really cool to see that. I always kind of figured they lived a lot of their, you know, life in the Keys in like a certain basin or on certain islands. Uh, but they're finding out that they're moving quite a bit. They kind of have some diff- big, bigger areas that they cover, especially the larger fish. Interesting, but they're not—they're not like tagging a bonefish in Florida and that, and then it's showing up like in the Bahamas or something like. No, that. No, I think he's had one or two do that actually. Okay. Um, I'm not completely positive about that. I think he talked about it on his last podcast. But they do have some fish um, that are moving around, kind of bigger areas, looking for spawning grounds. I have to check that out. What's his name again? Uh, Dr. Ross Boychank. Okay. And he did a he did a Millhouse podcast recently. That was pretty good. But, okay. That I was wondering uh, if it was the same guy, but I didn't want to sound like an idiot. Um, no, not at all. Uh, I need to check that out because I I find those tagging studies so um, so interesting, uh, especially for some of the fish that we have around here, like uh, speckled trout in particular. We'll travel from like, we'll, we'll tag them in North Carolina or South Carolina, and then they'll show up in like the Chesapeake Bay, which is wow, like a very long distance. And it's just, it, it's hard for me to imagine like a, you know, 17, 18 inch trout traveling that far. Um, but I guess yeah. they do. Um, I, I, so one of the main reasons, um, I wanted to talk to you was just to, get an idea of what uh, wintertime fishing is like in, in your neck of the woods. Um, because I, I, I think, you know, so many people think of Florida as, you know, the tarpon state and we need to go down there when the tarpon are running. But uh, it's got so much more to offer um, as far as other fish to target. And, I mean, y'all probably have resident tarpon throughout the winter too, I assume, but maybe not those big migratory pushes, but what are you focusing um, species-wise on in, in the winter months when all the snowbirds show up? So it's a lot of snook and red fishing. Um, my average day, we typically will run back to Flamingo area and fish in the Everglades. Uh, it's kind of nice having some cooler weather down here where you got to put some waders or wear a jacket on your ride out, but once you get there, you're comfortable in your normal fishing pants and shirt. And mainly I do focus on the snook and redfish in the winter months. And then on the warmer days, we can pretty much catch bonefish almost year round. Um, 
definitely January gets pretty chilly. So that seems to be the harder months to get into the juvenile tarpon and the bonefish. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the wintertime, when it warms up in the afternoon, those tarpon and the bonefish kind of get happier. So a lot of days I'll spend three quarters of my day out back in the Everglades um, playing the snook and redfish game. Mm-hmm. And then we come back to town in the afternoon for the last couple hours to look for some bonefish once the flats warm up. But with the cooler water temps, they tend to run a little bit harder and fight harder. And they definitely still eat, just like bonefish tend to eat pretty well. So it makes it a lot of fun being able to catch those fish still, even in this time of year. And I, a lot of the people that I get that do come down in the winter months are, you know, they're kind of blown away by how good and how much fun the fishing still is. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, do y'all, and you have juvenile tarpon or baby tarpon all year too, right? Like when you're throwing uh, gurglers at the grass or at the mangroves for um, for snook early in the morning, do you catch baby tarpon every once in a while? We do, actually. Yeah, yeah, we do. So I definitely have some spots that we go for targeting the tarpon, but a lot of times when you're snook fishing, you get a nice little tarpon surprise. And, you know, you're catching tarpon between 18 and 36 inches long out of the mangroves, but mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun when they come out and eat it versus the snook that you were targeting, which is still cool, but it's nice having that tarpon surprise here and there. Heck yeah. If I'm fishing a jig, you can bet it's going to be an iStrike Texas Eye. Dave and Ralph at iStrike have built the most versatile and durable lineup of jigs in the saltwater industry. Whether you need a finesse presentation on spooky wintertime redfish, or you need to hop a big swim bait on deep water structure for cobia and bull redfish, iStrike has the jig for you. Be sure to check out their website and use code EC10 for up to 40% off all iStrike products and 10% off all Z-Man products. The code can only be used at iStrikeFishing.com and you can find the code and the link to their website in the podcast show notes. There is no stealthier platform to fish the shallow water flats, creeks, and marshes than a pedal drive kayak. The P127 from Bonafide is my choice when I want to get out on a solo trip and access the areas that I can't get to on a flat skiff or a bay boat. It happens far too often in a boat where I have redfish and plenty of water in the back of a creek or bay, but there's a sandbar or series of sandbars between me and the fish and I just can't quite make it to casting distance. But with a kayak, I can drag across the sandbar right to them. Be sure to check out the full lineup of Bonafide Kayaks on the website or at Hook, Line, and Paddle here in Wilmington. I will have a link to the Bonafide website in the show notes as well. And do your do your redfish in the winter, um, so like around here, they get really schooled up in like groups, you know, in the hundreds uh, in, a, in a pretty small area. And they generally will stick to like one location for anywhere from two weeks to to a couple months to just depending on how much pressure they get do, do y'all's uh redfish in, in your area do they school up or is it still fishing for singles and in smaller groups still a lot of singles and smaller groups um even when they are schooled up it's maybe a dozen fish or so it seems like what i'm seeing Mm -hmm. and they are kind of spread out they're never really hanging out that close you know they'll be you know 50 to 80 feet apart a lot of them Mm -hmm. some of the larger flats that we fish for them for but when they're around you know to kind of keep your eye out of it every 50 to 80 feet or so before you you know see the next one but we just don't get the schools that big here anymore i don't believe what would be a good day on 
fishing red for redfish in the winter as far as like the amount of shots that you get? I'd say if you got 20 shots and you caught five or six, you'd be doing pretty good. Um, our redfish tend to be pretty spooky, so I use a lot of lighter presentation flies for them. Mm-hmm. But we do have a lot of spots where once the water cools down, they start tailing. It's a lot of fun. But our seems to be our cruising fish are a little bit less spooky than the tailing fish. A lot of the shots at the tailing redfish we have tend to be 40, 50 foot shots. Yeah. Yeah. Those are never easy. <laughs> no. No. But I find the colder the water gets, uh, the less sharks we have. So as the water gets cooler, um, that's when I tend to go farther west in the muddier areas that have a lot of sharks and the water's pretty warm most of the year. Uh-huh. So once the water starts getting down to the seventies, that's when the bonefish and snook really light up. Um, just because they don't have a major predator there trying to eat them while you're trying to catch them. Does the water clear up in the, even in the back of the Everglades in the winter? It does. It's uh, kind of wind dependent as far as like the wind going against the tide where that, you know, that big push of water comes around uh, the point there of East Cape. So mm-hmm. if we have a couple of days of calmer winds, uh, the water definitely clears up. And I feel like in the last year or so, I've seen a lot cleaner water out there coming in, which is really cool to see. So there's, for a couple of years, it was always just super muddy and kind of looked like Yoohoo out in Flamingo. But I feel like in the last year or two, we're starting to get some days where the water is actually pretty clear back there. Man, sounds awesome. Um, so you got, you got snook, you got redfish, you got bonefish, juvenile tarpon. Um, do you, what about triple tail? Do y'all get many triple tail where you live? We do. And I love triple tail fishing too. It's a lot of fun. I've got just a handful of spots where I can find them in the flats where you're seeing some redfish and some triple tail mixed in. Mm-hmm. And then we'll go run around out in the golf on the sunny days looking for them just laid up on the surface. But they're a lot of fun to fish for, um, especially for beginners, too. It's something that they can see. And they'll even eat the gurgler, too. So it's kind of fun when you get them to eat top water. Oh, heck, yeah. I've, I've never eaten one, but I, heard, I hear that they are amazing to eat. It's delicious. Um, I've been catching release only on charters for two years now. But it's real hard to pass by a legal size triple tail that we catch. <laughs> so typically, the few fish a year that I am filleting tends to be a, a nice triple yeah, tail. That is, uh, I th- I feel like that rings true for a lot of catch and release guys in Florida. Is, is if there's one fish that they're willing to take to the dinner table, it's usually a triple tail. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> there's somewhere in Florida. I feel like I've seen videos of just like crab pots like hundreds of them and then there's a triple tail and like every other one and i've i have no idea in florida where it is but may, maybe it's your area i don't i don't know um yeah without giving away too much intel but yeah that's that sums it up pretty good yeah okay <laughs> um well what else what else uh why don't you just walk us through like your year um as far as w- what you're targeting most certain times of year just so if, if people reach out to you and want to um come down and fish with you they can have an idea of you know if there's a certain species that's best a certain time of year that that would be the time that they would want to reach out to you yeah so if they were looking to for beginners i really suggest they come more in the cooler months so that way they have a good shot of getting the snook and the redfish when they're real happy and that would be let's say 
November through, I'd say, probably March, about then, where we're doing a lot of the peak snook and red fishing. And then in February, the tarpon start showing up. Um, so we can do a little bit of tarpon fishing throughout February and March. March, most years, tends to be one of our windier months. So if you don't know how to double haul, it can be a, a tough month for fly fishing. Mm-hmm. But come April, May, and June, I do fly fishing full days only for tarpon. And I suggest that most people book at least three days. That way we have some time to work on their skills and we get a day with a tarpon are happy. And just the odds of catching a big tarpon on fly, which is what most of our clientele wants to do, um, go up massively if you're on the boat for multiple days. Kind mm-hmm. of helps you figure out and learn a lot out there. And then in the summer months, we do tons of bonefish, permit, and uh, juvenile tarpon fishing. So this time of year, I try to get every day of bone fishing, permit fishing in I, that I can before it's cold enough that we're going out back every day. Gotcha. But the kind of like our quote unquote off season, which is usually August, September, October, first half of November, tends to be a little bit slower down here as far as pressure for the fish on the water. So it's one of my favorite times of year to fish because you don't have to fight for a spot. Pretty much any spot that we want to go to and look for bone fishing permit, you can get that spot. And you might see one or two skips all day versus tarpon season and seeing 50 different boats all day no matter where you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to imagine. Um, unless you're going just way, 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 way back, back into the Everglades that you're probably seeing skiffs all over the place. During and you know you'd think it would be like that but there'll be days where we're driving for 40 minutes in the boat and don't see another boat the whole ride and then you get back to where you want to go and there's two or three boats back there. <laughs> they've been watching you rich yeah <laughs> um well that's that's super good information uh for anyone that wants to go down there i, I do want to talk a little bit about permit i almost completely forgot about them um our permit, what are are they around all the time, or are do they move out at at a certain time of year? It seems like they move out as the water gets cooler. They kind of leave the backcountry and they're going to go hang out on the reef more. So I don't really do a lot of permit fishing. Pretty much like through January, February, March that time of year. Um, now, granted, that being said, the nicest one I've ever caught on fly was December twenty sixth. Uh, two years ago it was a nice Christmas present for me <laughs> so they tend to like on the warmer weather days and if we have a couple of days of you know less wind and warmer weather I think they'll move back into the back country mm-hmm. but the permit are still something I'm learning a lot about how to catch and probably will always be one of my harder ones to get on fly I mean they're they're kind of the uh would you say they're the pinnacle over a tarpon a big tarpon uh yeah, I mean, it's easier to fight them, but it's a lot harder to get them to eat. So I'm learning more and more tech every day, but unless you can double haul 60 feet in two moves, that's pretty much what it takes. So I just don't feel like I have the clientele yet to be able to chase them more often. Yeah. Is it, uh, so, so you only get about, what, five seconds at most to get to get a shot on them? Yes. Yeah. And what typically a lot of times what happens is by the time, you know, you make your third false cast, they've already moved so far from the point you spotted them that you lose your shot. So even so when a lot of it is, even when they're feeding, are they moving around pretty quick? 
So if they're tailing, they'll kind of hang out in the area for a little bit and you get a little bit more time, but it's going to be a farther cast mm-hmm. where you're going to have to set it down lighter and it's more technical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of times too, people see a tailing permit and they just forget to breathe. <laughs> so it's, I, and I do the same thing myself. I can make a beautiful cast all day until you put one of them tailing in front of me and then, you know, everything you know seems to fall out the window there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've seen that happen a lot on flood tides for us for uh for redfish it's like it's you get buck fever for sure um something about a tail popping out of the water and you can see him so vid- vividly <laughs> makes it all the harder um, yeah well um i do want to talk to you about your skiff a little bit um yeah so i'm very jealous of rich's skiff uh, it's one that I've looked at pretty hard, um, but I've never been on, and, and I just love the way that they look, and I know that the guy who builds them, or the company that builds them, is um, a very reliable builder and, and well-experienced. But uh, So Rich runs a Floyd 8-weight, right? Um, yeah. What gear, what kind of pushed you towards that boat over, say, you know, the Mavericks and the Hell's Bays and the Beaver Tails of the world. Yeah. So I went and demoed uh, the Floyd A-Weight in September last year. And we took it right to Shell Key, which is one of the most pressured bonefish flats in the world. And without even throwing at any fish, we're just kind of pulling it around. And I couldn't believe how close fish were coming up to the boat. So, biggest deal in my job is getting people close to fish that's, mm-hmm. that's my job 100 percent. getting people is making that shot as easiest for clients as i can and i feel like with the eight weight i'm able to get just a little bit closer than any boat i've ever pulled so it pulls insanely quiet which is really nice even pulling it the first day that i got mine i noticed that you know i was a little splashy with the push pole and i had to start upping my skills of pulling wise to pull quieter mm-hmm but that would be the biggest game changer for me with eight weight is that it's one of the quietest pulling boats I've ever pushed. So I feel like I'm able to cut that shot distance down quite a bit for my clients. Uh, a lot of my spin trips, I teach them to underhand cast for bonefish now. Instead of having people make longer overhand casts, you can really wait for that fish to get a little bit closer to the boat before you take the shot. Mm-hmm. And then definitely with the fly trips, the closer I can get people, the better. So a lot of my shots are for redfish, snook, bonefish, you know, tend to be more like in like the 20 to 30 foot range now. And then I've noticed too, pulling with big school, the tarpon too, when the water's calmer, that I can get more shots at the school before they feel the boat and know that it's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a pretty short boat. It's like a true technical pulling skiff, so it's not very tall. So I feel like it doesn't put off a lot of shadow or footprint in the water. So that'd be my biggest thing is I'm able to get closer to fish. Yeah. Yeah. That's an important thing. Um, is it pretty ocean worthy for like ocean side tarpon fishing? Yeah. Now running in the ocean and, uh, I'm definitely not, you know, bombing through the water at 40 miles an hour. I mm-hmm. do run it a little bit slower when I'm out in rough water, usually around 20, 30 miles an hour, but most charters, you're not really going too much faster than that anyways. Mm-hmm. So it's a really comfortable boat for that, but it works great in the ocean as well. On the really, really nasty days, I tend to stick more in the backcountry in the Everglades for my tarpon fishing. Mm-hmm. So it's 
I'm not out there when it's really gripping as much, but I've noticed it still does just fine out there, even on the rough days. And, um, I mean, back in the Everglades, it gets, I mean, it probably is shallow, as shallow as you could possibly want, right? Like there's, there's areas that, are there areas that are unattainable in any skiff? So most of the boats around here, I feel like are kind of an eight inch draft or bigger. And the Floyd skiff fully loaded. If I got a cooler full tank of gas to full grown men for clients, the max of draft is seven inches. So I tend to focus on a lot of the areas that are like around that seven inch mark because they get just a little bit less pressure. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely really enjoyed how shallow the boat gets for that reason that I can get into areas that are less pressured in a very pressured fishery. Yeah, that's that's super impressive. Um, yeah, for, for about like that, and I will say from um, from someone who has ran a a different skiff for uh, eight years now, um, my beaver tail. The one thing that drives me absolutely nuts, <laughs> it's not so much when I wasn't, um, you know, working in the fishing world, but but has driven me nuts ever since, is the fact that I can't, that I have to stand up or have my clients stand up when I want to get something out of um, one of the, uh, you know, what are they called, hatches, out of one of the hatches, you know? So like, yep. and that's the one thing that I really, really like about the Maverick. And the one thing that I really, really like about the Floyd is that you can stay seated. You can turn around and open up a, like a massive hatch, um, to access all your stuff, which is super nice. Uh, and I, I think really think it makes a boat feel a lot less claustrophobic and these boats are already as small as you would, you know as small as they need to be. Um, so having that, having that ability to just turn around and access that stuff without having yeah, the to, layout of the boat. Is, go, go ahead. No, sorry. Um, no, the layout of the boat is fantastic. Um, so my front hatch, I keep my life vest, throw cushions, and then a small box with the first aid kit, flares, fire extinguisher, all the stuff that I have to tell the client where it is. Mm-hmm. And then they still have enough room to keep two backpacks in the front hatch. So I kind of like to keep their area in the front and then keep my office in the back of my office, keep them out of there. Sure. <laughs> so they keep their gear in the front and then the console. I don't really keep too much in there. I might keep a water bottle in there a little bit, but I keep on the port side. I keep my fly boxes, all my leaders in that hatch. And then on the starboard side, I just keep my pack whatever my day pack is that I bring for the day. Yeah. So it's a really nice, efficient, simple layout, which, which makes it good. And then it's, even though it's a smaller boat, there's plenty of room walking between the console where you're not kicking your rods at all. Man, my rods get kicked probably five times a day. Yeah, that's happened in other boats I've had. So you kind of got to think about that layout there. But no, it's never been an issue in the Floyd, which is great. So the rod holder setup we've got is, I believe two tubes going aft and then four rod tubes going forward on each side. Mm-hmm. So most days I'll bring four fly rods with me. And I actually really like to keep the the reels on the bow end of the boat coming in and out. So that way the clients can grab 
the rod on their own and slide it in and out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And does the eight weight has that little anchor um, storage compartment, doesn't it? Yeah, as well? yeah. So I put some sea deck in the base of that and keep the anchor right there. And it's nice just having it out of the way. It's got its own little hatch. I don't care if it gets dirty from the anchor in there because that's just where it lives. I think that that was is such a good use of space on and, and really genius on their part because that's a very usable space um, on all skiffs because I really don't think there's much underneath. I mean, by no means am I a boat manufacturer and I really don't know what I'm talking about, but I feel like that space is a really good spot to be used for something. And even if you don't use it for an anchor, you could probably throw something else in there. Um, it's just, it's used space, which is great. And more storage. Yeah, it's nice having it out of the way for sure. And then yeah. instead of keeping it in a hatch where you might have other stuff that you don't want to get salt water on, yeah. uh, it's great having it just have its own little happy home down there. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it because, I mean, um, I don't use an anchor barely, you know, barely ever but you know if, if i did it would be in my front hatch which is like where all my batteries for my trolling motor are it's where my gas tank is and all that stuff would be getting salt and sand and what have you on it if i was using a an anchor regularly exactly um <clears throat> how does it uh i know we, we've talked about this before briefly when we chatted on the phone but as far as it's handling is concerned i always kind of for me and i haven't been on every skiff by any means but maybe you have um i always put the hpx s um just because i've been on that boat a ton because two of my really good friends have it uh and around here where we live there's just tons of teeny little creeks with a lot of hairpin turns and that boat, I have never been in a boat that handles like that. Um, it, it it will slide out if you, but only if it's like completely jacked up and trimmed up to where there's just barely anything in the water to help with traction. How does it? Have you ever been in a in an S and or or any other boat that you feel like you know kind of handles like that? Supposedly the the Hells Bay Waterman handles like that, but how, how does the Floyd compare as far as uh, handling is concerned? I've never been in the, uh, the S, but I've spent a lot of time in a 17 HPX with my roommate, and I don't think I've ever been in a Waterman, but I've also spent a lot of time in a professional with one of my big mentors. Um, but one of the first things I show, like my friends or other guys that are kind of really into fishing, like how wise I have, that are like, oh, why'd you get the new boat? I slow down to like 25 miles an hour, and I do a donut like a 30 foot radius and they're just blown away so i can turn so tight that water actually starts kind of coming up over the side of the cap uh-huh. before it and, it and it doesn't even lose slip so i've never been able to turn tight enough in the floyd where the prop slipped out or over revved which is really cool so if you go to brian's instagram page there's a bunch of videos of him doing donuts in the boat you know, rolling up at full speed, slowing down, doing a 180 and taking off with a big grin on his face. And it's one of the first things I did in the boat. I was extremely impressed with. So it feels like there's no corner that's too tight for it, which is just really cool the way that it handles. And I think some of that comes down to the rounded corners on the back of the boat. 
Yes. But he's just really good at propping the boats right and getting the motor at the right height where it, it, it doesn't split, period, no matter how tight you turn, which is awesome. I think the uh, the rounded corners on the on the stern of the boat are so uh, awesome. Is it, I, and that also, go ahead. I just don't, I don't, are there any other, other skiff manufacturers that are doing that? Not that I've seen, but I also attribute it to being one of the reasons why it pulls so quietly. So a lot of times when we're pulling around looking for fish, not really stationary, but if we're on the pole and we're actively hunting fish, um, as soon as we see them, I start slowing down. So I have that pole forward trying to push the boat backwards a little bit for the shot, or I'm sticking the pole in the mud and twisting it to kind of hold the boat in place. Mm-hmm. And because those back corners of the boat are rounded, it just has zero hole slap from the back of the boat even. So there's no jack plate, and with the rounded corners, there's nothing for the water to lap against on the back of the boat. Mm-hmm. So it's extremely quiet when it comes to getting that shot, and especially in windier days or rougher weather. Or if I'm down current and have that wind hitting it from the back, just the water is able to freely move around the back of the skiff. Interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, pretty cool. I hadn't thought about that. That's great. Um, well, if someone's in the market for a Floyd, you just got sold really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've encouraged a lot of people to come check it out. It's a great boat. And uh, Brian and Heidi have been awesome to work with. So really, really cool people to have in the industry building boats. I'm really stoked that he's building the boat that he is. And it's it's my favorite boat that I've ridden in so far. And I feel really lucky that I get to pull one every day I go out. Yeah. Heck yeah. Um, well, what else, what else do you feel like? Is there anything you want to cover as far as your area is concerned and, and uh, you know, stuff that you like to do? Um, I mean, not really. I kind of treat every day on the water like it's my day off, whether I'm guiding or fishing for myself. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like we covered quite a bit unless you have any more questions. No, I think I'm, I'm sure I'll come up with a few right after, uh, uh, we end the podcast, but, um, we'll just have to have you on again if, if those questions come up. Um, sounds great to me. How do you, how can people find you? on social media and how can people reach out to you as far as uh booking a trip with you yeah um so they can reach me um through the robbie's website at robbie's marina they can contact me through there or they can just best thing to do is give me a call and then on social media uh just capt c-a-p-t dot rich underscore hastings if they want to send me a message through there awesome well, uh, Rich, I really appreciate you taking the time to get on, and um, hopefully I'll be able to get down there soon. Now, this is one thing we didn't talk about. I, t- I was going to try and go down there. When was it? Was this like six months ago, I think? Yeah, I think it was, it was during tarpon season, I believe. Yeah, my uh, my littlest one got salmonella. <laughs> is she doing okay now? <laughs> yeah. I think, I, I think I've traced it back as to why – or how she got it um, for, for, because everyone's like, how the heck did she get salmonella? And I was like, I promise we don't feed her like raw eggs all the time. Um, so we built a, like a vegetable garden in our backyard. And uh, you know, I know nothing about gardening. So this was all new to me. And um, 
but from what I understood is that you're supposed to, you know, kind of mix up topsoil as well as compost. And the place that I bought compost from, I was putting it in this this garden box that we made. That's I don't know. It's like eight feet long and maybe three feet wide. And uh, I'm putting it in. I'm like, God, that smells like chicken shit. <laughs> <laughs> and and the only reason I really knew because it's like so um, it's so strong on your nostrils and it, you know back in my younger years I used to work in the poultry industry and it smelled like the inside of a chicken house which is just tons of a, a lot of times where um, people will get uh, compost and uh, but so long story short I'm putting all the dirt in here the whole family's outside, my wife and my two daughters. And, um, you know, I'm busy putting this stuff in. And I turn around, and the one, the youngest one, the one that got salmonella, is taking fistfuls of compost and just shoving it in her mouth. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering how nobody else got it and yeah. just cheated, but that really explains it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I th- I, if I had to, if I were a betting man, that's probably what happened. So. That, that, that seems like it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. um, but we'll make it happen next time. Hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later. Um, but again, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, Rich, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. Yes, sir. If you're anything like me, you like a clean boat. That's why I've chosen to partner with Carolina First Mate out of South Carolina. Carolina First Mate is a family-owned business that provides environmentally friendly boat cleaning alternatives. My two favorite products are their hole cleaner that doesn't harm your trailer and their boat wash. Be sure to use code EC15 for 15% off your online purchase. If you're interested in checking out all their products, you can find a link to their website in the podcast show notes.